Hi, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, yeah. It's good to be here with you guys. Yeah. This stuff's pretty fun, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Once we understand how to use it, like the kids do. Well, I look like a goofball with my white earpiece here, and you look like a professional, you know, dialed into the computer. So I don't know how you do that. I don't know why I have this, but... Looks, looks fool you. How does uh, Rick look? I'm always impressed with him. He's in the car now. Uh, yes, I am actually multitasking, driving, paying attention to traffic and participating in the call. So there we are. But uh, he's out. What, Jim? He's out in the field. He's the one I want to hear about. Yeah. I am on a mission. Are you? Is there a chance that you could get dirty or go into a cave or what? What is find silver? No, but I, I don't think there'll be a cave exactly. There could, however, be a tent fort in Bolivia. Say that one more time, Rick. A cave slash tent thing over the dining room chairs in the dining room of the grandchildren's house. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 follow your other active archaeological adventures on the next time. So it, it is part of my fortress of the Ohio Valley. Very good. Well, a lot of history in the Ohio, Ohio Valley. And um, Jim, up in Wisconsin, is that is that considered part of the Ohio Valley? No, but the Ohio, in my view, is part of the Mississippi River system. And I think it was to the ancients as well, because the Ho-Chunk language the Siouan language was spoken all the way from Minnesota to Biloxi at the mouth and up the Ohio River. Pocahontas uh, supposedly was a member of the Siouan people before their people got away from the whites and moved west. And then you got the Missouri River. Of course, you have the Mandans who spoke Ho-Chunk as well, probably because they fled for protection under the Ho-Chunk. And, and so a lot of the stories that, you know, in your friends and connections say that Ho-Chunk were the major Indian group. Um, is that, Rick, is that your understanding? Is that not as known to the masses that the Ho-Chunk were so dominant all around? Well, they were dominant with regard to the river system. In some way or another, they, I'll, I'll use the word govern, who used the river systems and how much and how they did it, uh, as far as for what purpose. Um, but the other end of that stick is they didn't, they weren't necessarily rulers per se, as much as they were bureaucrats in a really large civilization. Would you agree with that one? Yeah. I would, yes. And things change with time, of course, after shortly after the whites come and Nicolay sets up his uh, peace treaty 
with the uh, Algonquin of the East, uh, they break it and the Illinois decimate uh, Ho-Chunk. Uh, there's only about 10% uh, left generation after Nicolay. And so thereafter, their greatness was only in memory, but memory of different tribes. Yeah. And, and what, uh, Jim, tell us about the water levels of the Mississippi, of the Ohio, of the Missouri, just are they, were they constantly fluctuating up and down? I heard the Mississippi was once so wide that it's, how, how much wider was it? And then it, did it get smaller? Can you just describe the water levels over the passage of time? Well, I'll make a stab at it. Um, I'd like to use a analogy that uh, Larson from the USGS used when he was talking about water levels and isostatic rebound. He says it's like a uh, bathtub partly filled with water. You can raise the whole tub. It doesn't change the water, but tip it a little bit and uh, things change. And so he said that what you've got really, and it's often overlooked, is Lake Superior is like a bathtub. It was part of Lake Nipissing. And after uh, about uh, maybe 1200 BC, it separated from uh, Lake Superior, separated from Lake Nipissing. So you got a bathtub going up, an isostatic rebound and uh, Lake Michigan and so on, following the normal water change of, of Lake, of uh, the Nipissing. So to answer your question, just because the water has gone up on the North Shore of Lake Superior, doesn't mean it went up down at Chicago because that's like you sitting on a, a, a feather bed and one end being in Chicago and where you sat was up north and it's like the glacier melting where you sat is coming up faster. So up north it's coming up faster. And as long as there's water that can flow in the rivers, the rivers wouldn't necessarily be higher or lower just because the lakes into which they flow are higher and lower. So Beautiful. you can go to the north side of Lake Superior and see an old area there that we call the Fort Site, kept very quiet by the Canadian government, but we were there before Otterhead Island Lighthouse got extinguished because of changes. And the lighthouse keeper's wife showed us all over. And there's an old fort there. Uh, there's stuff built out of rocks that are very ancient and obviously associated with the port. Now that is about 50 feet above present water lake superior. And you get uh, site at Huron Mountain Club, another harbor site, about the same elevation. And you get up to uh, 
Copper Harbor, the same thing with that's where the ship petroglyph is. So those are much, much higher than the present water level. And since a lot of that was part of uh, Lake Nipissing before Lake Superior and Lake Michigan separated, it shouldn't be any surprise that we have evidence of old beach lines about 60 feet higher than present level around uh, Beaver Island. However, if you get down to, to uh, Oconto, Wisconsin, near the border with Michigan, there are the uh, old beach lines, Nipissing is only oh, 20 feet higher. And you get down around Green Bay and essentially you can't find it. So during those times, there was up and down movement. And then we also have something called, uh, well, some people say it's a sea level change, not because of the glacier, the glacier making the land go up, but actually shift in the pole. And um, if that's real and it appears to be worked by, by uh, our friends, Bob List and uh, John Bira, Birma, who've traced all these uh, alignments show that indeed uh, there was water coming up the Mississippi when the water was higher by about 700 feet. And so in parts, then the old beach lines come almost up to Chicago real wide. So I don't know if that helped at all, but that's the kind of crap I've been working with. Wonderful, Jim. Good job, buddy. Uh, let's see if Rick can, Rick, can you jump in with something about water levels? Certainly. Uh, as Jim mentioned, and I've alluded to in past talks, uh, the water levels also drove what water routes you used. We talked about the Ohio being a tributary of the Mississippi, but when the were in this area around the Wabash, the Ohio was a carry to the Wabash. So the uh, eight, uh, 16, uh, 1715, sorry, 1715 map by Delisle to the Mississippi rather than the Ohio. Now, having said all that, 5,000 years earlier, it might have been entirely different, but I don't think it was. I think the Wabash was still the main and that the ancient Ohio Valley has carved out a lot of things deeper because of increased flow at their end. But in about 4,500 BC up to about 30, my is that you could get in a canoe on Isle Royal and paddle it all the way to the Gulf of Mississippi without ever porting you. Never have to get out of the canoe. And Jim, do you have something to say about what he said or clarify anything that he said? Oh, I agree. Um, the, there was a period where not only canoes could go up, but there was a period uh, of a high nipissing when the glacier got off the couch and the couch started rising that 
eventually it choked off the water going out to the St. Lawrence and it spilled down on the south end of Lake Nipissing through the Chicago Ship Canal and created a wide river right to the Mississippi where uh, for all practical purposes, it appears at sailing ships of the type you see at the petroglyph probably at um, Copper Harbor could have gone up without portaging. And, and that would be, you know, boats with a big sail, uh, look a lot like a Phoenician boat, Minoan boat or Vikings who were later in this boat business. But not only canoes, but larger boats could have come up for a time until that closed off. Yeah. Well, I, I did a study on one of the canoes that was pulled out of Lake Michigan, considered an ancient piece of equipment. And it was uh, 32 and a half feet long, four and a half feet wide, drew about eight inches, maybe 10 inches of water. So that would be enough to ship 4,180, or I'm sorry, 4,850 pounds. Uh, that's a lot of cargo. Yeah, is that the one up at Waters Meet near the border of Wisconsin, yeah. Antonagon? Right. And um, there's a reason they call it Waters Meet, and there's a reason that the boundary between Wisconsin and Michigan is that there. It's an ancient portage. And um, then we have to consider as well, a big boat like that could carry a lot of weight, but uh, it would be difficult to move it over some of those rapids that you find up near the, uh, the source of the Wisconsin and Ontonagon River. And so we have other sites, oh, let's say at uh, Chikachi, an Indian name, but it means uh, rapid water near Wisconsin Rapids, where in fact, historically, the French could come with fairly large boats, but no further, and they had to transfer their goods to canoes, birch bark canoes. So at different times, there would have been a, well, a social interface that we would call commerce with different people all working together in some sort of a peace fashion to keep uh, everything running. And this went on, of course, right. until the fur trade as well. Very good. For my study, because it is uh, an analog on the south coast of Wales, same proximal width and apparently the proximal capacity. First, the boat itself is gone because they estimate it was in about 2000 BC. And uh, only the cargo resting on the bottom outlined the shape and size of the ship, uh, which was about the same as that canoe at Waters Meet. And Rick, say that one more time. The, the cargo ship that they found off the south coast of Wales was inside. However, the was and everybody said, "Oh well." They ended up on the same ship. They picked up the tin on the way through. 
picked up the tin on the way through. Just a little hard to hear you, but I have a good feeling that you're going to have better service soon. So we'll repeat that story um, at some point. Um, so Jim, t tell us about some of the other sites that are up in your neck of the woods. Why is it that that Wisconsin, you know, Minnesota, Michigan, Canada, like, you know, you got the Bigfoot stories up there. You've got, I mean, I don't know what sites I can say from, you know, Powers Bluff, the Godshaw Rock Shelter, Aztalon, Devil's Lake, um, Rock Lake. Like, what sites can you talk about that, you know, are, are you know, what sites are real special up there that you can share with the world and not be concerned with? Well, I... Um would say to the question, why Wisconsin? Uh, why, um, let's say, why Jerusalem? Why, why those places where all the trade roads came together? Why were they important? Because of trade. People have always wanted other st people's stuff. And if you can trade peacefully, um, that's a source for success and wealth. Uh, up in Lake Superior, Isle Royale and the Keweenaw in Northern Michigan, you've got a source of ancient wealth, which was copper nuggets. Only, essentially only place where large copper nuggets, and not ore, has been commercially mined to a large extent. And so people came wherever from wherever they could probably from the days of the uh maritime arcade which is like 7000 5000 bc there were people going across the north atlantic if you believe the europeans and some of those people would have obviously had copper nuggets aboard and other people would like them and so sailors will put what they can in the boat if they think they're going to make profit at the other end. And then following that, then you have the copper mining, almost industrial scale, it looks like. 3000 BC, maybe 4000 BC, up until around 1000 BC in Lake Superior. Uh, then the water routes changed as Rick suggests it says and uh, but some people still kept kept coming and then they'd have to go on the rivers and the portages so instead of big sailing boats they'd have to have dugout canoes and uh, birch bark canoes and you'd have different people uh, changing the cargo at different places but the trade kept going so right it was until the French Came and they use the same spots and the same techniques that Waters Mead in Wisconsin, not Waters, well, Waters Mead too, but uh, Chicachi or Wisconsin Rapids, uh, there are historical counts that the French came that far north and couldn't get beyond the rapids. So they unloaded and had their Algonquin allies uh, take the goods the rest of the way furs, whatever. So I would think that, you know, we should not be surprised that Wisconsin 
has all this stuff because it is a, has been a center for commerce for a long, long time as the Holy Land, uh, starting with copper, uh, with the people from India and, and frankincense and myrrh and whatever luxury you want to talk about. Now it's oil, of course, it's a center too. Very good. Um, What's that, Rick? I said, I'm pretty sure that for a time it was. It's just hard to hear you, buddy. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and check out. I'll, I'll catch up with y'all later. Okay, buddy. All right. I've got some good questions for Jim. So we'll continue this soon. Okay. Bye. So Jim, so getting on to, you know, some of those other sites that are up there um, that you've shared with me, some that I've been to, you know, the around the Bob Krupke has a harbor, a port in his area. Is that correct? Yeah, it would be uh, on the high Nipissing level. And I think there's good possibility that a nearby inlet was a port. It would be in the harbor. And uh, it's got ceremonial rocks. There's a big mound there of earth, which happens to be red clay. And you can't get a soil probe through it because it looks like it got baked, almost baked like brick on top, which we find at several other sites. And we have them down in Indiana as well. Angel Mound, I believe, is capped like that. Uh, and on top of that are big uh, rocks, standing rocks. One looks like a chair, and another's got a big quartz crystal in it and so forth. And then off to the side, you've got other standing rocks in the woods. And you've got alignments to the summer solstice, sunrise, sunset, and uh, also about 15 November, which evidently was a good time for the ancient people to get out of that country before the snows came. And we find that at two or three other sites as well. So it's a significant site that has not been studied by archeologists and we're just hoping that it doesn't get completely destroyed by loggers who have no reason not to run over them with their big tired vehicles unless people tell them, tell them there's something there and it should be protected. So that's the big issue. Yeah, just like we were at that site up up in your neck of the woods and the logger gentleman, you know, he, I'm sure he wouldn't have done what he did if he knew what he was doing. He just had no idea that his logging or his moving of big giant stones was a destruction of an ancient, um, you know, basically uh, in all likelihood, a Minoan, uh, you know, a Minoan uh, site, uh, because there's no other explanation for who else would have been doing that feminine type of a site. Um, you know, they just don't know any better. And then they feel bad about it. But 
it just is what it is, obviously. So thank you for letting me vent. Um, <laughs> um, Jim, tell us, go ahead. Do you want to say something? Well, I agree. Uh, one of the goals of our ancient earthwork society is education because as some of our Native American elders have said, the biggest danger now to these ancient sites is not looting as it was 100 years ago, people looking for treasures and digging, is destruction by development because of ignorance. And so education has to be key to it all if we're going to save the sites. And, and so what, we've been to a few sites, what could that be where you show up to a site and it's a circle, it's a rectangle, whatever, but it's got this clay cap to it. And just kind of describe what this is. And it's, there's one in Indiana, there's one a few different places. Just, I mean, somebody said that they thought it could have been, you know, the Knights Templar looking for treasure there. Somebody else thought that it's a UFO landing spot. Why or what is a possible theory? of this site being baked in clay or the top few feet. Just describe what you see at one of these sites. Well, uh, we can take, take the Krepke site and I can share you, with you some of the mysteries. We don't have all the answers, but number one, it is, uh, where it is within sight of Portage Lake, which was a harbor that seems to be the center of long range alignments and center to the prehistoric copper uh, trade because there are multiple sites in Southern Wisconsin and all the way to the Bighorn Wheel that point to this area. Uh, so this is, if people were coming at this time, probably up the uh, St. Lawrence River, although they could have been coming up the Mississippi and going to Beaver Island first and then over. This is on the way to where the summer activities would be. And Pamita, who was a Menominee guy, uh, told me that different people came together at certain times for the summer business. And our surveys showed that that was the summer solstice that he was talking about, at least at Lizard Mound Park. So then that made sense to him too. So that was something anybody can uh, time, be it on the ocean or on land, that's when the sun rises and sets due east, east-west, perpendicular to the center rotation of the stars or north star at least so number one uh, the site location is significant and if you're going to come in with boats be it from mexico or gulf of mexico or anywhere else in atlantic ocean or from europe over to iceland along the coast and then up immaterial. Those people had, would have a route and they'd have a set time that they would get together with other people. And if those people knew on both sides when the meeting time was, 
And where it was, everything was in order. And so I would say the Krepke site is located there in just that spot. It's not in the Keweenaw, but it's just across from the Keweenaw and you can see it. And it would be a time where a place where everybody could meet at a certain time and uh, do the negotiations, I suppose. Their ceremonies, as Kamita said. And uh, then we look for this big unusual feature, and there it is. Anybody walking up to it will see this big mound on the top of the hill. I mean, you can see dolmens elsewhere, but it's clear to anybody looking at it that there's a big man-made feature there. And then we walk up on it and see it's about eight feet tall, and there are rocks on top of it decorating it. And those rocks just aren't any old rocks. There's a chair, which symbolizes something, stone chair. And there's a rock with a, a quartz nugget in it, which symbolizes this is a spot you're gonna have to use in alignments. And then you start looking to the southeast and the northeast, and then you find these other two standing stones, which are big boulders different than all the others. Uh, and so then you get your dates from that. You got summer solstice to meet, and uh, then there's summer cross quarter day, which is about now. Height of activity before it starts to get cold. And 15 November when it's time to say goodbye and close, close the site for a year. So um, that's the pattern you get at that site. And then we go to Lizard Mound, uh, where Pamita had stories still of two groups of people meeting. And by the way, he said the religion had come from India when these mounds were built. It didn't make, any, made no sense to me, but upon checking it, it makes perfect sense, the history. They, they knew all about this country and called it Patala, as did the people of China and, and, uh, and Tibet. Uh, but the same thing, you get together on the summer solstice to open the site for ceremonies. And uh, pretty much the same pattern as elsewhere. He said, Lizard Mound was just one of a whole series of places where ancient copper moved from the Great Lakes uh, down to the Mississippi. In other words, commerce. Is there any other explanation for the amount of copper that fueled the Bronze Age in the Europe and Mediterranean? Is there any other explanation other than it came from America, the copper? Well, there are people that won't let, won't, don't want it to happen. You know about the isolationists and the diffusionists, and they've been battling for 100 years. Um, the, a lot of this data could be analyzed now scientifically, but a lot of people won't let it be analyzed scientifically. The Detroit plates are an example. These inscribed plates found in 
burial mounds in the Detroit area were declared obvious fakes in the 1800s because the professor who looked at them, pictures of them, couldn't read them, didn't know any language like that. So they're fakes and they followed that all along. To do otherwise would mean that the people there were in contact with Europe before Columbus. And that gets to our dogma, manifest destiny, which becomes political because if manifest destiny is just a farce and a lie, then our stealing of the Indian land is unjustified. Once one of the blocks fall, they all fall. And so there is a coordinated campaign out there on Google and Wikipedia and whatnot to, you know, to discredit a lot of our stuff, our diffusionist stuff that, you know, diffusionism versus isolationism, that either people were independently creating things on different continents, but they were the same or there was contact between them. And, you know, you type some of these things on Wikipedia or on the internet and, you know, it, it says they're fake and that's the end of it. And Wikipedia, somebody at their company decides on the Kensington runestone, what's going to be included. They decide to not include Scott Walter's work. He's written four books on the subject. He's just not present on Wikipedia on, under the runestone. Uh, the Newport Tower, they declare a fake, um, you know, or at least not ancient. So there's once one block falls, a lot of blocks fall and um, messes this whole thing up uh, for the isolationists. Right, Jim? Well, yes. And the powers who have been controlling our minds for the last uh, century in this country in the education field do not have not been using the scientific method, which is facts have to be analyzed. They were using the belief system. And because someone believed that the Kinsinger runestone was fake and other people followed and they wrote, it is fake because we believe it's fake. And you analyze the real data that comes up with something different, and then you're gonna be attacked or you're gonna be ignored. Uh, one of the nice things about these surveying these big mounds, though, I haven't uh, had anybody accuse me of making them, faking them. Where the Detroit plates have been <laughs> faked, the Kensington runestone was faked, the uh, Newark Holy Stones found by a surveyor in the 1800s with Ten Commandments and Old Hebrew on it. He made them, it was fake. But I haven't heard anybody yet accuse me of faking these big mounds, of building them first. It would take a lot of work. Well, we'll we'd have to have, have a lot of workers, uh, a little slush fund from the uh, university. Petty cash, right? Um, but, you know, I heard a story in the 1800s of there were so many giant bones found and whether that means a six foot, a seven foot, a 10 foot, but this guy and his brother or guy and his friends, they literally made these big giant, this big giant buried it. And I think found it a few years later. So there is fraud that goes on and 
people, whether for monetary reasons or just the, the joy of doing it, fraud does go on. Another example was the Bat Creek Stone, which was found by one of the Smithsonian's archaeologists uh, in North Carolina, Tennessee. And the Smithsonian threw him under the bus and said he was a drinker, a womanizer, whatever, and forged this Hebraic stone that was nestled right under the skull, uh, you know, facing, I believe it was north, south, and all of the Cherokee are usually buried east, west, I believe. I did interview the Cherokee chief and asked him that question, and he was a little stumped by the north-south burial, but um, jump in with something, Jim. Well, yeah, uh, the direction of burial is very culturally deep and not easily faked. Uh, we were mapping a big site in central Wisconsin at Powers Bluff, and there was a small fenced off graveyard there with spirit houses and so on, all buried east-west. Everyone agreed that these were historical Indians, but there were about six or 700 other people or graves outside of these fences, which were a big stump. And uh, the Potawatomi lady who was looking Adam, when I was there, said, well, these can't be ours because we're all buried east-west. Why is that? Well, you go into a Christian grave, they're all a uh, graveyard, and they're buried east-west, so that when Jesus comes on resurrection day, you can get up and face him. But to the fact that you only had east-west burials in part of Powers Bluff, Ralph Red Fox knew of the controversy there. He was from the Cheyenne in Idaho, and he made a little model for me and so forth and tried to explain why that was. And he says, these were buried before Christianity uh, and that it was part of the Animal Lodge religion related to the Bighorn Medicine Wheel, where they have 28 spokes. And he said, each one of the spokes had to do with a different clan. And each clan then had a star that they could relate to an animal and a direction. And that person, when they got buried, in that clan would have been buried in such and such a direction. And I asked him what his clan was, it was Wolf. What's your direction? Uh, he told me. I said, well, when you would be buried, then your head's going to be to the Northeast. He says, exactly. Well, this has been confirmed by a few other people I've talked to that long ago, the Ho-Chunk also, when the mounds were being built, also were buried in different directions, depending on their clan system. Um, then when we look at the graves uh, of the Eastern Indians, the Iroquois League and so on, 
around 1200, you had burials uh, one way and Christian directions come in around 1200. That, in, that tells you something. So the direction, of course, is important. And I'm familiar with the Bat Creek Stone and the guy who did the work uh, was an early surveyor of effigy mounds out here. And he surveyed as well, and other people surveyed, they call them elephant mounds, and be masted on mounds. And then uh, the government decided that the Indians didn't know about elephants, couldn't have. And so the dogma was there were no elephant mounds and all the records are purged and one mound exists, two mounds exist, which I'm trying to get adequately documented with radar and so forth. But the, um, uh, the whole business about discrediting people who surveyed elephant mounds and uh, discrediting any indication that people came before Columbus became very intense in the 1800s as Manifest Destiny came about. And as you know, the Nicholases who have been studying the Osage, who were speakers of the Ho-Chunk language, um, have been studying and trying to document that the Chinese Ming could have built the Alton uh, uh, Piazzo, but it was purposely destroyed in the 1800s because that was an affront to manifest destiny, which a group of people at the time were trying to push so they could take the Indian land. And I have a beautiful book that there was a color lithograph or color painting that was done by a German fellow uh, before that was destroyed. And a beautiful book. I'm going to start showing these things in front of the camera. But um, yeah, it clearly showed, I believe, a Ming dragon. Is that right? That was painted onto the walls from the around early 1400s in Illinois. Right. right. Yeah, double dragon, which is a symbol of the Ming Dynasty. And then nearby at the Alton's uh, Creek, they found, as I recall, a graveyard with a bunch of mounds. And in these mounds, there were burials with Chinese jade jewelry. But the story is unbelievable. If I may, if I may just jump in here. Um, the Nicholases, Lori and Mark Nicholas in Missouri spent about 15 years deciphering this ancient imperial, you know, uh, book text. And it talked about Zheng He in the 1400s, making these voyages all around the world, including to America. And I'm not going to spoil the, the surprises. The story that I want to say is the concerted effort in the 1800s to wipe out any record of the Chinese being here in America. The West Coast of America was called Fu Sang, um, and that was what they called it. That's where the Chinese went. Uh, when Zheng He's 
whole voyages were a disappointment. You know, the, the Chinese went inward, they destroyed all their ships, they said no more world travels, we're not going to spread our tribute, let's just focus on China. And that happened for several hundred years. But the story that I want to say is Senator Semple out of, I believe, Illinois, who was rubbing shoulders with Abraham Lincoln and the big politicians at the time, he went out of his way to destroy Chinese evidence that was in the Midwest in several places, including at, uh, you know, Illinois, the Piasaw Bluff there. And his son was the first governor of Washington, and he murdered a whole bunch of Chinese people up there. It took the National Guard to come in to basically stop this new governor in Washington from doing that. Um, but that's all I want to say about that for right this second. We have some fun stories to share, Jim. So is there something else you want to say about anything until I ask my questions? Well, this business of the the Chinese records of coming to Fusang, of course, that's going across the Pacific. There's a major, and the thing about the Piazza was that this was part of a voyage that had gone west, as far west as they got. And while we were at Beaver Island, remember that little instrument that I brought out um, that was from a Second World War bomber called an Astro Compass? Yes. Yes, remember that? <laughs> and what did the it Chinese call it? Torquatum. Torquatum. And in these, uh, not in uh, Laura's book, but in uh, Menzies, second book, there were two sets of voyages the Chinese put out, one in uh, 1421 and the other in 1433. In his second book, he's got about five or six references to Torquatum in his index. Wow. And the Chinese Ming at that time, whether they came to up the Mississippi or not is not the point, they were using the Torquatum for navigation. And they had a way of handling longitude. And uh, when we were up there, I said, gee, there's a way of handling longitude with the Torquatum, just like the Torquatum was used as a solar compass for surveyors in Michigan and Wisconsin in the 1800s because of the magnetic disturbance in the northern parts of, the, of Wisconsin. They had um, evidently been using that also for stars. And so <laughs> all you have to do is take the silly thing. And sure enough, you can figure out what stars at your meridian, which is the way that Laura describes them handling longitude. It becomes so simple. And so I'm working on this little paper, and I was wondering if you would write uh, the foreword to it. <laughs> I'd be honored, Jim, of course. What a, what a wonderful surprise. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's room for you and Rick both, because I know both of you are interested in ancient navigation, but I need somebody else. It's just too simple. 
to be taken seriously. And they need somebody else to try to poke holes in it. Well, I'm honored. And of course, that's very exciting. I may get some help from a few people, but uh, yeah, I, right. I will. Uh, that, that sounds like a very important forward. So um, explain the importance of longitude, Jim, and how we just didn't think that the ancients could do it. But you're saying that the Chinese had an instrument that they could do it. And how important was that? Well, to them, it was very important. Um, to us, we didn't really solve the problem until Cook in the late, or in the 1700s, late 1700s, about the time our government was formed. Uh, we began to put in longitude on our maps after Cook, accurate longitude. And uh, we say you can't do longitude uh, surveying on the round earth without time signal. And the equations of a guy called Alberini, Alberuni, who lived in 1000 AD out of Persia, considered like a Newton for the students from that area. And he came up with the spirit, uh, equations of spherical trig. But what is not talked about is that in his writings, he said he was with the Muslim army when they were conquering into India. And he found all oh, the equivalent of encyclopedias that showed cities along the ancient Silk Road that had both latitude and longitude associated with them. He knew how to get latitude, but he had no idea about longitude. So he got some spheres and uh, the trigonometry of the Greeks and he studied and studied and he asked the local sages how they did it and they wouldn't tell him. So he came up with his equations of spherical trig to prove that the longitude on those maps were correct. And the prime meridian was through Eugene, India, where they had a college where they said they've been teaching longitude since about 1000 BC. So here were the longitude values on the map and he invents spherical trig to do it. And then we say that you got to have his equations if you're going to handle longitude. Well, it had to be an earlier way, simpler way. And I think we found that with the Ralph Red Fox in this country because their Indian stories that the whole country was crossed with Thunderbird lines, crisscrossed, like our USGS Topoman uh, triangulation networks. And it can be done with ropes. You don't even need trig tables. So once you've got longitude or can handle longitude, then you can make your USGS topo maps. And then you can also go across the sea from one port to the other. Uh, without using spherical trig, or if you've got longitude on the ports, you can use spherical trig as our Navy does today, did for GPS and figure out what direction to go. 
So it's key for mapping on the round earth, and quite frankly, also mapping in the sky, the globe of the sky. And so the idea that comes out of Laura's book, clear, it's foggy, of course, but it's clear that the Chinese Ming were using Nanjing, their port city, as their prime meridian, like we use Newton's laboratory today at Greenwich. And we use the vernal equinox for the origin of our sky longitude. They were using this, our song, which she gives our name for in the sky, and it was over Nanjing on the Chinese New Year. And if you can get anywhere in the world, what star is at your overhead on the Chinese New Year? Just a difference on the star charts and you got longitude, sky longitude is the same as Earth. It's just that simple. It's too simple to even consider almost. But it looks like it's real. Well, this app that Lori and Mark taught me about, Stellarium, which yep. basically shows where the ancient stars and planets were on different dates and back in the day. And um, I wonder, you know, in the 1800s, there was just that concerted effort to paint the Indians as such savage, as totally imp impossible that they could, you know, do things like long range alignments from mound to mound to mound and signal forts sending messages across the country in hours or days. It's just, it was inconceivable. These were savages. These were, you know, and that's the impression that, you know, the white Europeans had of them in the 1800s. Um, I was curious why you think Jesus was holding a clear sphere, a clear globe in the Salvador Mundi painting, uh, which is the one that just sold for, I don't know if it was 500 million or 700 million to a Saudi prince or something, but he's, he's, got, the, he's got the cross, which supposedly symbolizes balance, you know, men and women in balance. He has breasts, which are basically, you know, the same type of thing, but why he would be holding a, a sphere, a clear sphere, uh, you know, a globe, and then his other fingers are up and down, as above, so below. What do you think that globe is that he's holding? Well, I'm uh, not sure I've seen that, and it's not clear in my mind, but from your description, the fact also that there's a man there with breasts, Yeah. that to me would indicate a concept in Rome as Christianity was coming to power of Mithra from which we get Christmas and so forth. And it was more popular than uh, Christianity at the time. And people in Germany were celebrating uh, the birthday of Mithra, 25 December, uh, when they were trying to figure out what day should we use for Jesus' birthday. And I said, well, that's a popular one. Everybody will come if we have it the same day. So Mithra was associated with mysteries in the sky. 
He's always showing sac sacrificing a bull. Well, that bull is always going from right to left, and it's just like the heavenly bull in the sky. So in that, the whole idea that somebody recognized the stars are on the globe, and by golly, the earth is on the globe too under it, <laughs> was the impetus for high science. It was kept secret and during the dark ages, in many ways, uh, attempted to be repressed and extinguished. So I see Mithra there, and with Mithra, it's all to do with astronomy. Astronomy has to do with navigation, it has to do with surveying from understanding the globe. You can get true north, you can get latitude, and also longitude if you know how. So it represents very high knowledge, but it's also one that most people don't see and didn't see in that day either because of a secret society. It, you know, as above, so below also that yep. what's yep. up there is in our bodies. Yep. Um, the phrase, you know, obviously when I think Mithra, I think Baal, right? The god Baal, goddess? Yeah, Baal and Bull are about the same and in Ogum, they're the same, Ogum language. So yeah, Baal was the sun god, certain people. And uh, so was Jesus later, he was considered the sun god. And that doesn't mean physical reality. Once you're starting talking about metaphors and so on, you're talking about the sky. And that if you under, can read the sky, you can read the earth, so below, you're in concepts that are really deep. And uh, so I, I, I'm seeing this as certainly something that would uh, reflect deep understanding, deep mysteries, which probably go back way, way before the Egyptians into India and China, 13,000 BC or thereabouts which is probably where the Torquetum started too. Well, um, th that painting, if I didn't mention it, is attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, they're not 100% sure of it, but uh, he obviously was an enlightened, you know, grandmaster of the Templars and whatnot. And could da Vinci have had Chinese knowledge uh, given to him or? <laughs> I, I chuckle because that's what I was just uh, studying last night. This, the second book on the Chinese coming to America by Menzies, 1434. Uh, it's also in Laura's book, to The Gates of Feng Two, which are uh, two books that have survived the purge in China for this period of time when the Ming we're exploring. And um, the whole idea of Chinese being here, of course, is one thing. And the idea that the heavens and the earth 
reflect each other. And if you understand that reflection, you can get longitude and you can go navigating on the earth the same as you can in the sky. That's deep stuff. So then I'm kind of uh, going off on the detail. Repeat your last question, would you? Uh, oh, I don't know. Duh. Oh, uh, Da Vinci being the grandmaster of the Knights Templar, did he have yeah. secrets secrets through that? And could those okay, secrets have come Okay, in this book chance? then, the second book, he points out that the last of seven voyages of the Ming under Zing He, Zing Ho, went to Fung, Fung Tu, which would be Loris's, is probably North America. But they also stopped without question in Cairo and Tuscany. Both of the books relate to this voyage. He was a devout Muslim. And he then used the last trip to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. And it's clear they also stopped in Venice to visit the Doge. And you know, it was a time when Istanbul was Constantinople and that was Christian. And the delegation then met with people in India, I mean, in Italy. With them, they had the equivalent of encyclopedias, which the Europeans didn't know anything about, which showed all kinds of stuff. And his book says they had a thousand books on different subjects. And guess what? Leonardo's da Vinci's drawings are really all about. <laughs> They're about drawings like you find in an encyclopedia. He makes the point that the Chinese delegations spent a lot of time in Italy. They gave them maps. That's where it appears to Menzies at least that our maps of the ancient sea kings, the Perry Reese maps came from, he says they were made by the Chinese and given to the Christians in Italy and wound up in the palace at Istanbul, or Constantinople, which was taken over by the Muslims and Perry Reese had these maps as a collection. And after America was formed, the Turks gave them to America as a gift. He makes the point that this visit, although a big failure in the eyes of the Chinese, sparked the part of the Renaissance that you see with Leonardo da Vinci and other people. So anybody wants to look further, Gavin Menzies' book 
1434 addresses this in great detail. And he is not speculating here. He's going through records from Italy and China. And the pattern there is very convincing to me that indeed Leonardo was influenced by this Chinese delegation. Very good, Jim. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, he may have had also separately secrets being the Grandmaster of the Knights Templar and perhaps the Templars on Earth stuff at the Temple Mount in the first century. Um, he also, you know, there were jokes that he had alien influence, but yeah, the most likely is Chinese influence and Templar well, knowledge, perhaps. Or the metaphor of somebody holding a globe, <laughs> that globe is telling a lot of stuff. It's telling about something you can't see in the globe. It's a clear globe. It, yeah, it's a clear globe. If you understand the geometry of globes, you can and understand the concept of so in heaven, so on earth, which the Chinese were doing with their finding what star was at the meridian at local midnight and using star charts to get longitude on earth. It, it's all deep stuff, but yeah, it's well worth a study. There, there might be three dots in that globe. I have to double check. Um, and then you have Marco Polo, who came after that, I believe, 1200s, and Gunnar Thompson, PhD, uh, out of Washington. The late Gunnar Thompson, our, our very good friend, uh, you know, he wrote that these Chinese inventions, the uh, not the uh, harquebus uh, for the gun, you know, was a Chinese invention that then went into the Pope and the French king's hands and that that was spread around the Harkabus, Harkabus, um, along with other Chinese inventions, because who controlled the Silk Road controlled the knowledge and the trade, and there's Chinese stuff coming into Europe. Exactly. Uh, Jim, I want to continue. I don't know if you have to go now. Do you want to take a little restroom break? Well, I wasn't thinking about it until you brought it up, but no, I think I'm okay for another 20 minutes. All right, All right 20 minutes. Then I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to run, take the quickest whiz. So where do I want to go that you're going to talk? And then I'll be back in 30 seconds. Tell me where you want to go while you're doing other <laughs> things. And I, I'm, no, I'm ready. This is live. You're going to keep going. All right, here it is. The Tell us the story when you were at... Frank Schattenwald's mound, his site, and you were with, was it Richie, a few other people, possibly a Mayan shaman, because the Mayans came up uh, to Wisconsin. And tell us what happened there during the ceremony that you were invited to attend with maybe some clouds opening up and some special things like that. So get going. I'll be right back. Start right. talking. Well, you want me to talk? Uh, well, he's talking about Frank Shadwall's hill. Frank Shadwall was a uh, practicing mason, uh, lived in uh, Richland Center, Wisconsin, Richland County, place called Muscada, uh, which has 
great interest to the whole chunk and they had stories about it. And a lot make a long story short, a visiting art professor, young art professor from New York, who was half Cherokee, came out and wanting to trace her roots, Jan Beaver was her name. And she uh, was looking for the effigy mounds in Wisconsin and saw this sign, effigy mound lane, went down and was looking for the effigy mounds and couldn't find them. So stopped in at this house and where are all the mess effigy mounds? Well, they were in this field. There were 60 of, of them, mostly eagle mounds. But they're all flattened except one or two in the woods. And uh, he spent a year on the trip with her husband surveying and compiling maps of these mounds, which were preserved in the archives of Minnesota and the surveyor's notes. And went to the Ho-Chunk and said, look, this is what was there. And the Ho-Chunk already knew the site was important. They decided right there to buy it for a buffalo ranch. <clears throat> so it was a very special site for various reasons. And the hill, it's known as Frank's Hill, is off the edge of this big valley with all the where all these bird mounds were. And it has um, function from the top mound on this hill to 12 on the next hill over and to what they call a ghost eagle uh, in the valley, which you still can see because differences of soil when the corn is ripening, you can still see this big eagle. Well, <clears throat> Ho-Chunk bought the land and it was special. And that was about the time when the Indian uh, prophecies up here was that a time is changing. The end of the Mayan calendar is coming, which meant one thing and new era is dawning. Uh, Christian TV saying it was going to be end of the world and so on. Well, Indian, so on. no, just end of a <laughs> Mayan calendar cycle. But part of it is that a white buffalo is going to be born, which is going to really tell the Indians up there that the time has come to start sharing your stories. Well, a white buffalo was born right after Jan Beaver and her husband left and went on to out west and they had an accident and she was killed instantly. Uh, and 
the white buffalo was born and lo and behold, a group of Mayans come to Wisconsin to start telling their stories, not down in Mexico, but up here. And so we got to know some Mayan elders and they wanted to see the white buffalo. <laughs> it was on the Hyder farm down towards Beloit. And so we took him down there. <laughs> and here was Miracle, the white buffalo lying in the pasture. And there's my, everybody was coming then, giving hanging offerings and stuff. And the Mayans come up in their dress, and I'll be doggone. Miracle gets up, walks right over to him, and nuzzles him, ignoring all the other people. Darnest thing I saw. Well, that started connection with the Mayans. And when the end of the Mayan calendar happened, uh, 2012, the Mayans were up here talking to the Ho-Chunk. And they decided to have one of their get-together meetings on Frank's Hill. So uh, I don't want to give the guy's name because I'd probably get it wrong, but he was one of the chief priests of the Mayans. And uh, later on, <laughs> he uh, saw the Mayan new cycle come in, not in the temple in Mexico and Guatemala, but in uh, a little uh, longhouse in the yard of Preston Thompson, who was um, in charge of the Ho-Chunk uh, eagle ceremonies. So this particular time that you're asking about was part of this get-together of the Ho-Chunk and the Mayans. And uh, the Mayan priest wanted to have a traditional Mayan ceremony where you teach us Northerners how the calendar worked and stuff. And it involved uh, candles of different colors and reciting the days of the week and going through the whole process of counting the week and 26 days, which is key to the Mayan calendar. And I knew what was coming because I'd seen it before, but on that particular day, the whole chunk were there and a bunch of other people were gathered. And uh, he started this fire, but it really didn't look very good because there was big clouds coming in from the west, big thunderclouds. But nevertheless, the ceremony wouldn't take too long, so he went through it. <laughs> and Richie Brown, he remarked too about what happened. We've got a painting here by one of our people of 
<laughs> what she saw that day. But anyway, this big wall of black thunderclouds coming in from the west. And here's that ceremony going on on the hill. We thought we were going to be drenched with rain anytime. The entire clouds parted on the north and the south, raining and lightning like crazy. And here we were in the middle. When the ceremony was over, just as he was going to extinguish the fire, he didn't have to because we were deluged by a downpour and everybody ran for the car. <laughs> it was it's one of those things that makes you want to keep coming out to these sites and interacting with these unusual, remarkable people. Do you find that things just happen strangely when you're doing I mean, you do a lot of these surveying works by yourself and you just love the peace and quiet of it, Jim. Do, do, is there some force behind things that just presents itself to you sometimes? Well, obviously that experience had quite an effect on me <laughs> and Richie as well and other people who were there. Other people just saw it as an unusual end to a, a ceremony that should be down in Mexico, but it was up here. <laughs> but yeah, to answer your question, of course. When a bird flies by all of a sudden, or, you know, a, a, what was it? A, a worm walked by, you know, right at the, there's just weird things happen. That connection with the animal world is something that I think our ancestors had a better connection to. Yeah, we don't have any even words or sense of that. Uh, some of the Native Americans still do, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can tell tell you about barred owls as well uh, at Powers Bluff. Uh, I think Preston was giving a talk, and we're talking about how the calendar works, and a barred owl came right after he talked and sat in the tree right where everybody was looking up at it, hoot, hooting. Wow. Seen it. <laughs> Not that that doesn't happen, but uh, yeah, those things happen. So it kind of makes you want it for entertainment. It's great entertainment. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Jim, I'm sure you want to get going. And then I have like a hundred questions for next time. Oh, you um, do? I do. I have I have a lot more we can talk about. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what they they will be so I can try to get my thoughts in order. Well, um, I I want you to answer this question. You need to answer one more for me, okay? <laughs> the did you tell me the story? I have so many thousands of pages of notes, and I've got a nice girl. Iris is going to try to sort me out here uh, for this podcast. But did you tell me about the Melungians and that they had horns, or was there another African group that lived in America that had? Was it horns, or what am I thinking of here? You're thinking of the Melungian knot. It's about as big as probably a. Mm, partridge egg or dove's egg, and it's a fatty growth on the head. It'll 
either be on the forehead like my grandfather had or on the back of the head like my aunt had or my brother has it too or had it he had taken it off and it's unique to that group of people it's called the melungeon knot now that gets back then to the story of people here before Columbus. I know a lot of people will be offended that Columbus wasn't the first to discover America, but in this book, I think 2012 by Menzies, or maybe it's 2031, 33. In any case, he mentions the Melungeons there that uh, besides the Chinese coming to the Caribbean, about the same time when the Chinese were sharing their maps with the Italians, the Portuguese were very interested. And Prince Henry, the navigator, he of course, followed up and they had a voyage right after the Chinese to uh, the Caribbean and various places. And uh, they were uh, then setting up these colonies of Portuguese. The Verde Islands of Africa was supposedly one of their colonies. And, and I can't remember the details, but if it was in Virginia or someplace, there was another column. Well, the Melungeons, when they decided to send the Indians all west of the Mississippi, were kind of a problem because they were here, they were part Indian, part Black, part white, and they didn't know what to make of them. And uh, the Melungeons spoke some sort of European language and said that we were Portuguese. That's the story. And if you visit or if you check the Melungeon websites and stuff, I think you'll find this story. Yes, our story is we were Portuguese. And so somehow they picked up this crossbreeding between whoever they were when they got here, the natives and the blacks. And uh, became known as settlers to a lot of the whites and also explorers. So my uh, grandfather, was part Indian, had these knots, Melungeon knots. And uh, you'll find that there are references to Lincoln's mother also being a Melungeon. And uh, they weren't dummy people, but they were different. Um, So that kind of ties back to what we're talking about with the Chinese as well. If the Chinese didn't bring them, 
they paved the way for the Portuguese a generation later, or at the same time the Chinese were here, to use their maps to set up their own colonies. Very good. And uh, yeah, I mean, what is the thinking that Columbus may have been a Hebrew Knights Templar because he married, his wife was, you know, connected with the Templars. So where did those maps come from that he had? It is interesting that he's, Till the day he dies, supposedly he thought he had reached Asia. I mean, do you really think that he believed that? Well, again, it's fresh in my mind, these books by Menzies, it's not your, his conclusions you want to come to, but look at the data. He spent a lot of time just going, pulling together data. And, uh, you'll find references, not only Menzies saying that Columbus had maps, that his brother or captain had seen a map of the world in the library of the Pope. So when he, he actually has the quotes from the journal. So yeah, Columbus, after the Chinese made contact, to Tuscany and of course Africa, North Africa, Cairo, and Muslims. He uh, everybody in that circle who were oohing and on about these new ideas were working with maps. And Columbus is just part of it. And he's referenced in the books by Menzies, uh, not from Menzies' opinions, but from actual data. And Menzies worked a lot with uh, people from China and from various spots, had his own website before he died. Uh, and treasure trove of stuff to refer to, although you can't take everything that that group came up with without chewing it a bit. Yeah, Ian Hudson is his, uh, you know, writer that's still around that's continuing his work. And I have a few trading cards that say Marco Polo, you know, had Chinese maps. And uh, oh, yeah. again, well, um, yeah. Yeah, well, Marco Polo would have been before these Chinese fleets went out. Right. Magellan, he had the map right where to go, to go to the Pacific. <laughs> this is quite well documented. And, and that Marco Polo very possibly went to the west coast of the United States is the late Dr. Gunnar Thompson's uh, book, Marco Polo in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but the, the trading card that I have says that Marco Polo's maps paved the way for Columbus, that Columbus may have had Marco Polo's maps. So it's just one possibility for Columbus. Oh, yeah, maps. Zing, Zing He was not the first Chinese explorer. That's right. Uh, 500 yeah. Buddhists and many. Yeah, Buddhists. from uh, 2000 BC, there are records that 
Chinese came across the Pacific, 500 BC, again, another expedition, They're always from the West. Uh, and then the Song dynasty before the Ming, mm -hmm. uh, supposedly also, according to Laura's work, I think there's reference there, that uh, they had been exploring and they were trying to find in 1430s, some of the cities that they had previously visited. So from 1407 or thereabouts, there were Chinese expeditions of exploration and mapping. It's just that from 1421, they really got behind it and built something like 2,000 ships to support it, special ships. Yeah, but the that, thing had been going on for a long time. Over an entire football field long, 300 feet plus, uh, 28,000 ships, I believe, a, a myriad of types and styles and treasure ships and basically going around the world to spread tribute and to also receive tribute from people, basically saying, we are the world's greatest power uh, respect us and we want to share knowledge with you but right. then um you know some bad things happened and impact one of the comets in the sky came down and um zheng ho was this you know seven foot tall still to this day revered as an incredible hero to china and um uh, you know just a very uh a very respected uh guy that supposedly died in america that they were looking for iron up in the Iron Mountains near Missouri as one of the uh, resources that they were trying to get is what the Nicholases believed. Um, they, they built so many ships that they denuded massive forests over there in what Vietnam and I don't know if it was Thailand or around China, but uh, massive, massive ships were uh, traveling, not just to the Indian Sea, but all over the world is the thinking. So, yeah. Yeah, Manzi says by end of the 1420s, they had traveled the world, all the, visited all the continents, all the seas. All right. Well, Jim, for now, we're done. Uh, and all this. Right. This was a double podcast. We got two sessions here. So that was a great yeah. job. You did very good work. We are going to do another one with, uh, we're going to talk about Merlin Red Cloud, Tom Opinka, your uh, very special experiences, garden beds, the fur trade, the Jesuits. We got a lot of, lot of fun things to talk about. So good job. Thank you. And uh, I'll talk to you in a few days. We're also going to yeah, get- let's Let's see if we can get Rick on the next one. I, wanna... I, I think when he was on that White River, there was the little people as <laughs> my, my, my Huron friends said are are playing with uh, playing with him. I'll go with that, and we're going to get you and Russ talking about the book that you wrote about Burroughs oh. Cave. Yeah. And uh, it'll be a lot of fun talking uh, you and your old friend. So. Oh, yeah, it'd be great. Okay, good job, buddy. Have fun today. I'll see you in a few days, okay? Okay, see ya. Bye.